is how do we support people through these experiences? What is our responsibility as an institution, as higher education administrators, to, to make sure that this is a seamless transition for you so you could focus on that global learning, that cultural immersion opportunities that, that really come with those types of experiences. I'm Jessica Glauser-Giver. And I'm Girish Balola. And you're listening to the Destiny Benders podcast, where we speak with international educators and education entrepreneurs to hear their stories of how they got started and what keeps them going in international education. Girish, how are you doing? So good to see you again. What have you been up to? To see you, Jess. Hey, guess what? This is the big one. It's our 50th episode. Can you believe it? I can't actually believe it. 50 episodes of Destiny Benders. Pretty exciting. It is pretty exciting. It just feels like, you know, it's been a while now. We've been doing this for about a year and a half, but mm-hmm. I never thought we would hit 50. I mean, nobody thinks about it that way, but here we are. It has been a year and a half. And when we started down this road, when we started doing the podcast, I didn't really know where it would go or how I would enjoy it or what to expect. But actually, it's been a lot of fun. It's been eye-opening. We've met some amazing people. We've heard some fascinating and often surprising stories And we've learned so much about, as we said at the beginning, people that we maybe know from conferences or see all the time at different events. And we've really gotten to delve deeper into their lives and what really motivated them to start working in the field of international education and keeps them going in the field of international education. You're right. I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know how uh, how much of a lasting power we had. But so obviously, thanks to all the listeners who tune in every week or every time we post something, you know, like you said, I think for me, it's a couple of things. One, doing this, you know, our weeks are busy doing a lot of things, but every time we record, it's like an hour of like this island that I escaped to, which we're just talking about somebody and it's so cool. And number two, their energy, enthusiasm and the work, their commitment is a constant uh, drug for me because you know as an entrepreneur some days are bad some days are good but every time I have we have a guest on I get really excited after for the work that I'm doing and, and my team's doing and third amazing people that I would have never met having met many of them in person after recording which is so cool so I feel like I don't know about you but I feel like I'm making some really good friends around the world because of the podcast don't you think I do feel that way. Yeah, I really do. I feel like we're getting to know so many people. And as you said, finding old friends, meeting new friends, and really making those connections. I don't get out as often as you do in terms of going to conferences and getting out of my little patch of the the world. Uh, But if I were to, I certainly feel like I'd be able to go somewhere and have a lot of familiar faces to sit down and chat with. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the most rewarding things is having somebody just walk up to you at a conference and say, hey, I listen to Destiny Vendors. It's awesome, which is so cool. But it's so cool (laughs) that somebody randomly recognizes 
who we are and then comes up and says, love the podcast. Thank you for doing that. So it's again, reinforcement for the, the podcast we're doing. So yeah. I'm super stoked to keep it going. Here's to yeah. 50 more or 500 more, however long we can go. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's the appreciation I think that, that we get that keeps us going. So I'm really stoked to have our guest today because not only is he an international educator, but he's a really good friend of mine. Um, and our guest is Ravi Amigam, the Associate Provost for International Programs at the University of Delaware. Ravi, welcome to the podcast. Like I was saying, you are our 50th episode, and we're so excited to have you here. How exciting. Thank you so much, Girish and uh, Jessica. Uh, my pleasure to be joining you here today. Super excited to have you on our 50th episode. That is really exciting, actually. I can't believe we got this far, Girish. Ravi, <laughs> Let's kick it off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in the field of international education? Mm -hmm. The podcast really focuses on international educators, where they got their start, how they stay motivated in the field. We really want to take it back to the beginning. So tell us a lot about you. Yes, of course. Oh, my. Well, huge congratulations on, on achieving 50 uh, episodes of, of your podcast series here. Um, I did just ask you uh, prior to us talking where I could go to find a list of, of all those podcasts. So certainly uh, I'll be going back and, and listening to others. But um, uh, listen, I, I, it, this is a, a, a trip down the memory lane, really, uh, so to speak. Um, I've been in the field of international higher education for uh, 22, 23 years now. Uh, time has just flown by. Uh, started uh, as an international admissions counselor, uh, doing a little bit of recruitment here and there. Entered the field of international student support services. I, I stayed there for quite a number of years, in fact, uh, uh, and grew into the field to um, expand my my portfolio within ISSS, not just to advise uh, international students and scholars, but really focus on um, their, uh, supporting their adjustment and acculturation process while they are here in the U.S. So I've, I've, I've been in international higher education in the United States uh, for, for most of my career um, and then got an opportunity to really uh, continue to, to um, grow in the field of international education, uh, where I'm at currently, not just oversee uh, ISSS uh, inbound mobility programs, but also outbound. Uh, so study abroad, uh, well scholars, international agreements and partnerships and really get an opportunity, a huge privilege to strategize for how we, we expand our global visibility and collective impact uh, around the world. So um, that's in a nutshell my, my career progression over the past 22 years or so. But uh, I do have to tell you, um, it's, it, it, it's such uh, an honor to, to be doing this work. And I think a lot of my colleagues and counterparts in the field would say the same, but, but particularly for me, Having been an international student uh, myself from many years ago, just allows me now to, to have this validating, transformative experience and opportunity to make a difference in, in the lives of others, whether they are another international student or, or scholar or, or visiting faculty. Uh, that really what gets me going in the morning, uh, motivates me to come uh, to work and, and really uh, be able to, to make that small difference in, in the successes, the experiences of our guests and international visitors here on, on campus. 
Yeah, Ravi, you know, I've seen you over the last 10 years or so, uh, watched your uh, meteoric rise within the field and, and the amazing work that you do. So congrats. I'm so proud of you for that. But you just kind of alluded to it for a second there. I was going to ask you. So you came as an international student. So take us back a little bit before uh-huh. your journey within the career, right? Because I want to know, right? Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And did you ever, when you're in high school, think, you know what, I'm going to go into international ed. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about that. Well, Girish, since you're my cousin, you should know a lot about <laughs> my background. No. I do. I, I'm just, I, I'm just, for my, just for our listeners. I want you to know that. <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, and so I was born and raised in Mauritius, a uh, small island, the east coast of, of South Africa, Madagascar. Um, uh, fourth generation uh, Indian there. Um, first language uh, is Creole, French, uh, and the official language is is in English. Uh, so it, it's always interesting to to reflect back. To, you know, um, being a student on the island there, where you're in class, and um, you know the textbooks are all in English and uh, oftentimes explained in French, and you still didn't get it or couldn't grasp it. Then the uh, you know the instructor switched to Creole. So just that a navigation of, of uh, different linguistic uh, environments really prompted me to, to really connect very well in, in what I do here. So yeah, born and raised in Mauritius, lived there until I was 17. Then my parents um, got positions in Zambia, uh, Central Africa as expatriates. So we moved there uh, together. So my brother and I and my parents relocated to, to Zambia, uh, where I finished my O-levels and, and A-levels and then came to the United States, uh, Chicago as an undergraduate student. So, um, and, and, you know, the international journey didn't stop there um, in terms of, of what's pushed me to live abroad. So I've been in the U.S. since then, but uh, also had the great honor of, of doing my doctorate. I did a Ph.D. in internationalization of higher education uh, at Catolica in Milan, Italy. So uh, just different perspectives of that global experience, whether you're a traditional or non-traditional student, wherever you reside, it's exciting, but it gets quite complicated to, to, to really answer the question of where are you from, right? Uh, it really puts, um, puts that um, reflection piece in, into how you answer that question. But swimming in and out of different cultures and different cultural contexts and location, just really the beauty of, of, of the tools at times. Yeah, we talk about that on the podcast quite a bit and just has our own story about where are you from? Like, how do you answer that? But, you know, I, I do want to dig in a little bit as an Indian, right? Whether you grew up in Mauritius or Zambia, was there expectations that you would do certain things like an engineer or a doctor? Oh. Or was that not it? So if that wasn't it, what did you study? Like, how did you get into international education? Well, you know, I, th- I think um, some of this could be generalized. You know, I, I grew up in a family who really pushed us as as kids to pursue our dreams. And I did not know that I was going to end up in international education, to be honest with you. But now that you reflect back, and uh, my father was the cultural attache to the Minister of Education uh, in Mauritius, in education, tightening it into that network of educators just full circle now, right? So many years forward, we're using some of the same language and, and definitions in the work that we do. He, he was a writer. He um, published quite a bit. And, and that's the other part of what I do here. I'm really, really thrilled to have an opportunity to not just serve as an administrator 
but uh, also be able to write and contribute to research through through uh, through some of the journal publications and, and writing that I do. But to your question, Girish, uh, you know, um, I started off wanting to do business and economics. I ended up uh, with a bachelor's degree in information technology and, and information systems. My master's is in uh, communications. And I have a PhD in higher education internationalization. So, you know, just kind of all over, and, but really interconnected uh, for the work that I do now. And uh, so no pressure, no social expectation. Um, although I have to say that many of my friends had to operate and live um, through those um, traditional, you know, expectations from where we were. And I'd be interested to hear from you. So you've just said that you were an international student, not once, but twice, because you then went on to Italy, to Milan, to do your PhD, right? Was that it? Tell us a little bit how has that experience helped you in your work that you're doing currently? So being a double international student, and then I guess taking you from one place to another, you're adjusting, you've become somewhat American, and then you're going to another place, to another completely different culture. Is this something that really helps you in your work today and what it is that you do today? And how can you draw upon the, those experiences? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I think there are multiple sides to it. Uh, I'd like to think that my own experiences, uh, you know, have molded me to be more understanding having a much larger, you know, broader worldview of, uh, of what it takes to leave your comfort zone and uh, travel miles away, thousands of miles away, and, and adapt to new cultures, norms, traditions, expectations, right? So you name it, it's, it's difference, it's navigating differences. Uh, but, you know, I, I also want to be mindful um, about the bias that that might carry along, right? So and that's something we do as as senior administrators, uh, often we think we know what our students want or like or prefer. It's different. I think it's built on personal experiences, expectations, the social um, setup that's around you, what you your own personal goals um, um, are set to be, how do you navigate changes across the way. Uh, which I think brings me to um, why I really have stayed and, and continue to pursue international higher education as a profession is, is how do we support people through these experiences? Whether you are an international student uh, leaving your home country, going to study abroad, or a study abroad participant leaving your, you know, um, your campus to go in a short-term learning, global learning, experiential learning opportunity. How do we, what is our responsibility as an institution, as higher education administrators to, to make sure that this is a seamless uh, transition for you? So you could focus on that global learning, that cultural immersion opportunities that, that really come with those types of experiences. So um, we, we've built here a number of programs and infrastructure, not just to support our students, but the faculty and the staff that are involved in such processes and programs. Um, and, and we, you know, there's a lot more work that can be done in terms of a collaborative framework for how you do this. 
we, we got to get away from two things, I really think. One is this whole deficit orientation perspective that sometimes is ingrained into uh, the mindset of you're an international student, you surely have challenges, we will help you get through those challenges. But rather say it's our responsibility um, as part of our strategic priority as a, as a global university to make sure that the support system, the resources that come along with your experiences are established here by design. So you come to a country to study, knowing that you will have a plethora of support services along with you. And we start, we start with this from pre-departure throughout the entire experience of, of academic experience of our students. Um, so so that, that, that is, you know, really key for the work that we do. One of the things, and this kind of ties in with what you've just been talking about, one of the things you mentioned that you enjoy about uh, your career progression and the position you're in today is that you get to do research, you get to do writing. Um, you're you're at that point in your career where you're able to really delve into some, probably some topics that are really of interest to you. What what research are you doing? What are those research topics within international education that get you most excited that you want to write a paper about or do a study um, on? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've had a focus uh, um, uh, all along on the international student experience, and that's partly, I think, driven by my own personal experience that we just talked about. But but I think professionally, I've always believed that you know um, my work and contribution to to the institution is is a lot more impactful when I can support those decisions with research and analytics, right? So the the role of evidence based findings and and recommendations, I think, in my opinion, can be uh, extremely important in how we support. Uh, the process of of making decisions at an administrative level. So, uh, you know, just as much as as how practice can help enhance research. So, I think, in my opinion, it's a two way traffic, right? So, uh, yeah. So, it's been really around institutional support services, um, uh, understanding the acculturation experiences of international students. Uh, developing a model for support services. I, I did a paper with a former colleague. How do you structure an international student support office? So you, and this is interesting. We were talking about that earlier on. As you both know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, uh, football fan, um, soccer, uh, you know, uh, supporter. Um, and so we we we, made, we we wrote this paper, a really interesting paper, right before the World Cup, the last World Cup. Um, using the sports analogy for how you structure an international student support office with, you know, the defense being how do you uh, work on the compliance standards and reporting requirements of the office, the midfield for how, you know, you engage in intercultural programming, creating that sense of belonging and cross-cultural collaborations across campus to provide these support services. And then the offense is how do you continue to internationalize through global perspectives across campus? How do you infuse those international uh, opportunities for global engagement, not just within uh, student mobility programs, but in research, in scholarship, in teaching, in learning, those, those different missions and, and priorities of the institution. So really this is what gets me uh, interested and in how do you uh, continue to evolve, enhance 
you know, support services for that particular community, which lead to recruitment and retention and success opportunities for, for that for that group. Ravi, have you considered taking some of your research to Liverpool? Maybe they'll win. <laughs> it would be a dream. It would be a dream of mine, for sure. Um, I'm just busting your chops. Uh, so I want to go back to the, you know, the things you're saying, right? I mean, what other technology solutions are you implementing to address the growing needs of international students? So that's one question. And then, at this, you know, in the same vein, I keep thinking about so much has changed globally, politically. How uh, have things, um, you know, how are they shaping up now in terms of attracting international students to the U.S. particularly or helping our own students yeah. go travel even more uh, yeah. with everything that's happening around the world? So thoughts on that? Yeah, l- let me start with the second question, if I may, Girish. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really uh, instrumental um, um, when we talk about um, internationalization efforts at the institutional level. Um, you know, obviously, student mobility programs is, is a key uh, element in, in many universities' internationalization priorities. Not the only one, but an important one nonetheless, both inbound and, and outbound. Um, um, so from a, a, an international student recruitment standpoint, uh, um, be, being able to reach those students, their families, their guidance counselors, those who are supporting them, uh, as they're making that career, uh, you know, choice decision making uh, for their for which university they attend is really critical. And and you've seen now over the years uh, and a, a growing uh, trend in uh, universities going to hold pre-departure orientation programs. You know, I did I did the first one close to 15 years ago at my former institution when we went to 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 a country to to meet with students and welcome them and prepare them to pack, um, set the expectations on campus, both inside and outside of the classroom. I think that is a critical element in how you continue to push support services out, uh, outside of the traditional realm of providing that, giving students and their families access to understanding what it's like prior to them stepping foot onto a plane and onto your campus. Um, I, I also think it depends on on the market that you're recruiting in, and and, and um, uh, but some markets are a lot more interested uh, in academic success. Others are interested in whether uh, you will support your students when they're there, and is there a diaspora, a local diaspora that they can connect with. Uh, around your campus so they feel more at home. Um, so that's really push institutions to think outside of the box. Uh, I'll tell you, at my institution, I've personally and my team have connected with our local government uh, officials, right? So the the Delaware Secretary of State um, uh, and the governor traveled to India uh, not too long ago. Uh, and we were invited to join their delegation. We took that as a huge and great opportunity uh, to really bring Delaware to that community in India. Uh, we hosted a reception for incoming students, prospective students and their families uh, with the governor of Delaware as the guest of honor. So they got to really see who we are and what this university was going to offer as part of a much larger societal kind of infrastructure set up uh, by having our governor there. 
Connecting faculty as part of the recruitment process is another area that we've personally done quite a bit of work on here. So when we go on those recruitment tours or um, um, are engaged in, in pre-departure orientation program, we always make sure that uh, the academic expectation is being uh, discussed uh, with those students so they can understand what their expectations are going to be when they reach campus and they start their first classes. So involving faculty as part of, of, of those initiatives um, um, has become extremely key for us. In fact, a couple of years ago, I summarized our global strategy for the university, because um, who wants to read a 50 page long strategic plan, and to be honest with you. So we really uh, came up with an abridged version of it. And, and I coined it the global 360 model, where, which is a multi-pronged, highly collaborative, strategic model for how you advance internationalization and global engagement uh, across campus. And it really looks at different dimensions for how you can engage several partners across campus in some of those initiatives. And of course, within uh, the recruitment arm, we've got interconnecting dots with academic affairs, the faculty engagement, research, development, right? And, and the larger student life, student affairs aspect of what we do. So it seems to be working well. It, it's been catchy here, but um, I think it just summarizes how we need to incorporate other aspects of the university life uh, right from the beginning in our recruitment uh, strategy. To your second question um, uh, about new technologies, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about how we get the word out. So there's a lot of focus on adopting uh, the right technology or family of information communication technologies for how we uh, get information out, resources out, and make them accessible to to our students, to our faculty, to those supporting them on campus and beyond. Uh, so there, there are a number of ways we're doing that, right? So the website is dynamic. We, we allow uh, our visitors to be able to sort through, build queries, uh, access information that they need at any given time. Um, but, but I also think, uh, going back to one of the comments that I said earlier on, is assessing what our students want. And how do you do that in an intentional way. How do you go about constantly making sure that there's a feedback-oriented mechanism in place for, in a formal way and informal way to gather information and, and, and help that inform the types of resources that, that you offer? So we spend a lot of time um, on uh, collecting information and feedback uh, from assessment tools that we use. Um, we've got to be extremely careful not to overwhelm our students. You know, our students are always, you know, over-surveyed. So finding the right place and the right time uh, in which they're comfortable to ask them how they're doing, what matters to them, what would they like to see changed here on campus uh, has been really important for us to inform some of the work that we do. Honoring student leadership and engagement uh, has been another area for uh, that we've worked in. So creating student leadership committees uh, and, and discussion groups where we let them, we connect them with each other and we in the room, like a fly on the wall, just picking up on some of the things that really matter to them. So just a really uh, uh, multi-pronged, different directional type of 
of of setup that we've we've created here to be able to to collect that information. So Girish, I'm going to pause here and let you ask the question that I know you're itching to ask, Cloudy, because we're discussing technology and oh. new ways of using technology. So you I, might as I well. Was, I wasn't going to, but now that Jessica is making me ask you. I'm always curious about what institutions or organizations are doing with AI. Uh, GPT obviously comes to mind, but there's so many other AI tools coming out. Is that on your radar at all? AI as a topic of discussion has really erupted in our field, particularly in international education. There, there are clearly different camps uh, and school of thoughts around that. Um, but in my opinion, it's one that we cannot avoid and we've got to be proactive in thinking through that, not just in terms of its impact uh, on our field, but how do we utilize some of the instances of artificial intelligence um, and the tools that come with it to really help further uh, the higher education experience? It's a, it's a heated debate. It's a hot topic. There are, as I said, various uh, school of thoughts uh, guiding this. We are engaged uh, in some of these discussions, but we are data, we're collecting data. We are informing ourselves about that. Um, it will have to align with our institutional philosophy uh, as um, that is at other institutions as well. Um, but um, it, it's a complex uh, topic, um, but uh, certainly as, as somebody who has led some of those discussions, uh, Girish, uh, we continue to, to see how you advise um, the international higher education community as to what the impact is going to be, has been uh, on our field. So, Ravi, uh, we, we call this podcast Destiny Benders, right? The whole idea behind this is that the people, particularly in international education, people who do some amazing work, changing people's lives, like the students that we interact with, and so I'm assuming your life has changed, your destiny was bent by the pure fact of you studying overseas, coming to the U.S. to go to college, and all the things that have happened to you. And the work you're doing continues to bend other people's destiny. So I'm curious, if you were to stop and think about maybe a couple of people in your life who've mm -hmm. really bent your destiny, who comes to mind? What have they done? And then on the flip side of it, who are some people who you've really influenced? Yeah, you know, just so many, so many people that have influenced, you know, my my career track. Um, I mean, of course, um, I think there is um, there's that there's research that really supports that, right? That that social uh, that what is it called? Vocational anticipatory socialization. I think there's a whole field on that. How as a kid growing up. Um, you know, what are some of the key elements that really help shape you become the professional you are today? And at the top of it, I think family has a, as a, as a, as a you know, a, quite a prominent uh, element as part of all of that. So I have to say, as I, we were talking earlier on, you know, um, my father and, and, and mother were both uh, educators. So I think that's really helped shape me or at least given me the bandwidth to think um, about um, serving in this in this field later on. Um, you know, professionally, academically, I've had so many wonderful, I have to say, I've been so lucky to have met a number of people in my life um, who have really inspired me to grow uh, and continue to contribute to this, to this field. 
Um, you know, as a new international student advisor, I had the privilege of working with, with Peter Briggs uh, at Michigan State University. He's, he's retired, has been a, a wonderful uh, contributor to the field uh, for so many years, and he's inspired so many people to, to, to do the same, including me. Uh, um, so I have to say he's had a, a phenomenal impact uh, in my mindset as uh, as an international educator for what matters for the work that we do, that, that empathy, that uh, constant uh, curiosity uh, and discovery and, and being able to connect the dots and make sure that our students are always first and how do we, whatever we put in place contributes to their well-being, their success and their experience. Uh, Ravi Shankar, I don't know, uh, I'm sure you know, uh, really got me into the field. He introduced me to Peter Briggs, uh, uh, former president of NAFSA uh, uh, and, and a really, uh, uh, you know, well-known figure in our field, especially in the ISSS field, was one of those other people. But just, just too many names, my colleagues, my teams along the way just really contributed to, to the ongoing process of, of discovery in the field. Uh, academically, I've got some, I've had some uh, the huge honor of of learning under and later collaborating with uh, a number of really key scholars in the field: uh, Elspeth Jones, um, uh, Hans Dewitt, um, uh, Betty Lesk, and others. Uh, partly through my connection with the Center for Higher Education Internationalization at Catholica in Milan. Uh, but Elspeth and Elspeth Jones and, and John Dennis um, were my uh, supervisor for my uh, doctorate, and I've learned so much, hugely a gratifying experience, um, learning and, and writing and doing research under them. So I could I could keep on naming folks, but they, you know, um, reflecting back, uh, it all matters. Uh, these 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 types of experiences. Um, are extremely important um, to, you know, frame you as an international educator moving forward. How, who have I impacted? I, I think, you know, the students, I, I don't have names here, but the thousands of students, uh, faculty and staff we worked with throughout the years. Uh, I, I can't say I've done a, a great job at keeping in touch with many of them, partly because, you know, life just happens, but I've been honored to, to have been able to connect with some of them through LinkedIn and, and following what the great work that they're doing in their country or still here in the United States uh, around the world. Uh, just really hugely validating to be able to, uh, to reflect on that. I, I get the opportunity uh, in my faculty appointment here at the university to to also advise as students, mainly doctoral students, and sit on their dissertation committees. Uh, so that's been really, really great to be able to to help shape, uh, help them navigate their research ideas and questions, and and see the final finished product down the road. So I can only imagine how many lives you've touched in your twenty some odd year career in international education. We're going to wrap up now, and I don't know that you know this, but we always kind of wind down our podcasts with what we call quickfire questions. And so Girish and I will ask you just some more lighthearted, fun questions about you, Ravi, and what you like or don't like or some advice. So my question, I will start. Um, So you come from Mauritius. 
And that's a place where many people go on holiday. <laughs> they think of it as a vacation destination, but you actually were born and raised there. You are from there. Yeah. Give us some tips for somebody who is going to visit your country on a holiday. What would they go and do off the beaten path beyond the brochure? Well, listen, um, to name a few, including Mark Twain uh, and others that describe Mauritius as, you know, the star uh, of the Indian Ocean. Um, it, it's, it's truly a beautiful destination for vacation. It, it, it's a wonderful uh, location, destination for tourists uh, because of, of the natural beauty it has, the beaches, food, the music, you know, just the cultures um, that exist on this island, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. Uh, so just a, a really interesting experience uh, if you've never been to Mauritius to, to instill in, um, um, seeing how people from different cultures uh, co-inhabit together uh, on this really beautiful island um, in the well in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but I have to also say that uh, the hospitality that comes along with all of this uh, is something not to miss. Um, and people are very kind and inviting and, um, and, and want you to uh, engage and experience the local culture. So I have to say uh, that um, underscores all of the you know, experiences that one might uh, be getting when visiting the island of Mauritius. Uh, Ravi, how does a kid from Mauritius grow up in Africa and move into the US, become a Liverpool fan? Oh, yeah. Well, you, you know the answer to that, right? So when I was growing up, really, uh, again, uh, I can speak for Mauritius uh, and from my personal viewpoint, but there, there really were just two teams in England that the majority of the fan base was divided uh, with. So it was Manchester United and Liverpool football. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I don't know. I can't say the color of their jerseys uh, was a determining factor in it, because they both wear their home jerseys, uh, you know, is red, dominantly red in color. But I don't know. I was just attracted to the um, uh, to the players, to the spirit behind why they played football, the culture of the club, um, the determination for winning. Um, and staying together uh, when losing. Uh, and, and, you know, so lots of these values res resonate very well with, with me personally. And, um, and, and then, you know, you, you, you get turned from being a fan to a supporter. That, that's really key in football terms. When you're a supporter, you really truly believe in this, not just the color of the jersey or who's winning this season versus next season. And that's really, you know, progressive with the years. But yeah, uh, wow. I won't tell you the number of years, but I was six, seven years old when I started watching Liverpool. Uh, you can um, imagine uh, how connected I am to, to as a fan, as a supporter to this club. I mean, mm -hmm. that's true loyalty right there. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to Mauritius because I'm fascinated by this. You say it's multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic. You mentioned food. I actually have absolutely no idea of what what's a, a national dish of Mauritius. What do you eat in Mauritius? Oh, my, it's really, it, it's a fusion of different types of cuisine. You name it, you'll have it there. But, but I think uh, now, um, no matter what, 
cuisine you are going to uh, experience on the island, they all derive from the Creole cuisine that's heavily tomato-based. Um, uh, you know, the spices that they use really help influence the different types of other cuisines that you get. So uh, the Indian food you'll eat in Mauritius is Mauritian. I would call it Indo-Mauritian. The Chinese food you will eat in Mauritius is uh, you know, China Mauritian. Uh, so it's it's just uh, really uh, interesting in that way how food, uh, different cuisines can can really be fused to create a very unique type yeah. of of, uh, uh, of menu, if, if you may call it. My favorite food is called the dal curry. It's quite unique. It exists on other island states around the world, but uh, the one you get in Mauritius is quite unique. It, it's kind of a, the closest food item I could describe it to is is crepe. Right. So how it's thin, you know, crepe and but you eat it with like potato and pea curries, um, peas curry in it. And um, uh, we can't find it here, obviously. And that is often uh, the, the the main factor in me jumping on a plane and going to visit uh, my my family and friends. Mauritius. first and foremost, <laughs> they know it's stop over to have Dalpuri before I get home there. So yeah, miss that point a bit. That's awesome. Food, food is always a great thing. Food is always there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, as we wrap up here, uh, first of all, congratulations on 100 years uh, for the University of Delaware Study Abroad Program. Jess, I don't know if you knew this, but the University of Delaware was the first university to send study abroad students. Yeah. I did not know that. Ago, oh, 100 yeah. years ago on a boat to France. And so there was a celebration at NAPSA. Ravi, thank you for inviting me. That was a great event. We, we are just thrilled, right, to be celebrating this significant milestone at the University of Delaware. 100 years of study abroad, the very first academic credit study abroad program in the United States. So we've planned for this for quite a while. And the reception that Girish, you talked about early on uh, was just one of the events that we've got planned uh, throughout the year. Um, to really celebrate uh, our pioneering um, contribution to international education and exchange. Um, but what a great year. We, we're just so honored to, um, to be able to celebrate this as, as the first in, in the United States. And uh, I won't be here for the next 100, but uh, so we're going all out this year. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. Here's the many more celebrations, both personal and uh, professional. Uh, thank you so much, Ravi, for making time for us. This was great. It's always good to see you. I very much appreciate the invitation. This was a blast and uh, I wish you best of luck for many more episodes uh, in, uh, in, in your podcast series. You've been listening to Destiny Benders. This week, Girish is at the International ACAC Annual Conference in Miami, Florida. So for the next episode, we'll hear from him as he speaks with international educators there. If you see him, say hello.